Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Doctors of Running Virtual Roundtable, where we, a group of doctors of physical therapy, discuss the art and the science to the stuff that we are putting on our feet we're really excited today. We have a bigger group. There's four of us here. Um, and I think the most exciting for all of us is that we are bringing on Andrea Myers. She is one of our guest reviewers. So, and she's going to tell us more about herself, but Andrea, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me guys. And then also in the round table today, we have myself, Nathan, and then we got Matt. We also got David or DJ, depending on if we remember to call him DJ. Let's dive in here. We're going to start just getting a background on Andrea. She has a lot of clinical experience, but tell us a little bit about your educational background and then what you do clinically. So I have a bachelor's in molecular and cellular biology from the University of Illinois. I started out thinking I was going to go into research. Um, and I was fortunate to have an internship during undergrad that showed me that I did not want to do that. Hmm. Uh, so I kind of came across physical therapy just by looking at what else I could do with my degree. Um, I was really fortunate to find a clinic to do some observation hours at that was just, you know, still kind of my guide for what physical therapy should be. I just fell in love with the profession from my time there. So I went to St. Ambrose University, which is in Davenport, Iowa, for my doctorate in physical therapy. Um, St. Ambrose really specializes in orthopedic and manual physical therapy, and I'm so grateful for the education that I got there. Um, I've been practicing for 15 years now, which seems like a long time, and time goes by really fast. Uh, I also have my board certification in orthopedics. And I also have the Emory University certification in vestibular rehab, which is the treatment of dizziness and vertigo. So I practice at Carlson Therapy in Bethel, Connecticut. And I'm also a bike fitter at Class Cycles, which is a bike shop in Southbury, Connecticut. Yeah, tell us a little bit about um, that background that you have in bike fitting and kind of like what types of people you work with and how does your experience with bike fitting affect your running and maybe talk about your what you do with running too and kind of your running history. Oh sure so I got into bike fitting because I was a professional cyclist for many years. Um, the combination of that plus being a physical therapist meant that a lot of my patients are cyclists. So if I had someone come into my clinic and said well, my knee hurts when I ride my bike, but it doesn't hurt any other time. Well, as a good therapist, I'm probably not going to fix that person's problem unless I look at their position on the bike. So I'd have them take videos of themselves riding the trainer or outside, and I'd say, oh, move your cleats this way or raise your saddle. But it really wasn't enough to really address my patient's bike-related problems. So I started looking into becoming a bike fitter and found a certification out in Seattle for physical therapists. Most bike fitters aren't PTs or medical people. They're people who work in shops who have taken a certification course. But of course, that means that they don't have the background in anatomy, physiology, injuries that a physical therapist would. 
So I went and did that certification and started doing fits at my clinic, which was great. Um, and let's see, in 2015, my friend who owns Class Cycles asked me if I would be his bike fitter. And it was a really nice partnership because when you're fitting bikes, you need a lot of parts. It's not running where you just need shoes and some clothes. So doing fits there has really enhanced the service that I can provide because if I need a new stem or saddle or different shoes, they're right there. So the bike, I definitely use what I've learned in fitting and applied it to my treatment and assessment of runners. So with bike fitting, it's all about making the position on the bike match the person. You're not giving every person the standard idealized position that, oh, well, if it's uncomfortable, then too bad. You wanna understand that person's unique mechanics, flexibility, strength, any issues they might have. The other day I fit somebody who was born with a club foot and one of his feet is a whole size shorter than the other foot. You can imagine how that would throw off somebody's pedaling style and their comfort on the bike. So you're basically setting them up to match what their body needs to make them comfortable, fast, strong. So when you think about running, we have so many different types of shoes now that we can choose for people. And I think for most runners, it's kind of a mystery, like what shoe is the right one for me for the marathon or for a 5K or for easy miles? So I look at shoes in a similar way that I look at bike fitting, they're tools. And based on each individual runner's characteristics, you can choose the right tool for what they need at that given moment. Um, and being part of Doctors of Running has certainly helped me hone those skills and that way of thinking to help my running patients find the right fit. Fabulous. No, it's super cool. I think that we've as a team learned stuff from the way that your history in professional cycling and also bike fitting like influences the way that you've seen the trajectory of footwear and stuff. And, mm -hmm. you know, technology, I feel like technolo technological advances in cycling have been crazy and you're seeing some of that in running too, but I feel like you have that window into what it looks like when technology changes and how that changes the sport. So what do oh, you got? Definitely. I, that is, I really want to pick your brain about how that, that fitting session went with somebody that has club foot. That must've been fascinating. Oh I yeah. Totally Happy to talk That's about it later. Awesome. Um, um, one of, one of the big things that you touched on that we, and again, this whole website, I think is really developed for Doctors Running is talking about helping people understand that there is no you know, perfect optimized thing that everybody needs. I think that's obviously, I, I'm so happy that the cycling world knows that the running world, we, I, we, I think we need to catch up on that. There's a lot of people trying to go, Oh, what's the perfect shoe instead of asking what's the best shoe for me. And so sound that's, that's what we really want people to get out of this conversation and others is going, we want to help you find something that works for you. Because if you try to do that the other way around, you may or may not have some issues, right? You don't need to be uncomfortable. The, the more comfortable you are, the more likely you are to, first of all, run. And second of all, it might, it'll probably feel better. So. Absolutely. I'll give you a, you know, not to talk about bikes on this running podcast, but um, a lot of triathlete, well, most triathletes think that if they're doing a triathlon, they should have a triathlon bike, meaning an aerodynamic bike where they're riding in this position. 
Well, riding a tri bike takes specific skills. Those bikes are harder to handle than a regular road bike. And you have to have the flexibility to be in that forward position. And the course that you're racing on has to be appropriate for that type of bike. So again, I recently had a client who was doing the Lake Placid Ironman and Lake Placid is very hilly. Uh, there's a long descent that's a little bit technical. So if you're a person who isn't comfortable descending in the aero bars, which is very challenging and dangerous, then a tri bike might not be the right choice for that person on that course. So, you know, we talked about it and like she's done this course in the past. And I said, well, how much time did you actually spend in the aero bars? And she said, well, not a lot, because when you're climbing, you don't spend time in the aero bars. And she wasn't comfortable being in the aero bars descending. So now you're using a heavier bike that doesn't have an optimal climbing position. You're not getting the aero benefit of it when you're going downhill. So what's the point? You're more comfortable on your road bike. You're probably going to have a better race. Well, in fact, she did. She had a PR on the bike, a PR in the marathon after the bike, and she qualified for Kona. So crazy. again, it's choosing the right tool for the specific situation. And I mean, that segues really nicely into shoes, right? You wouldn't use a road flat in a marathon, but you also might not want to use the vapor fly for a mile race. It's choosing the right thing for each individual for their specific situation. Yeah. Or, you know, using the Metaspeed Sky for a trail race. <laughs> yeah, I heard someone did that. Twice. <laughs> How'd that go? <laughs> Actually, surprisingly well, although I had some Achilles problems afterwards, but that's okay. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> the other thing, tell us a little bit about your current running goals, kind of what you're up to, any upcoming races, that kind of thing. Oh, sure. Um, I, you know, I spent many years bike racing, but before bike racing, I had been a runner from age four, like did like kids track, um, ran on the cross country and track teams in middle and high school. But then after running the Chicago marathon in college, got an overuse injury in my knee. And, you know, despite extensive efforts in physical therapy had to stop. And that's what led me to bike racing. But maybe five years ago, I started doing a little bit of running in the off season with my triathlon friends. And, you know, they'd invite me on longer and longer runs. And it's like, hmm, you know, this is fun. I'm not getting injured. Maybe I want to see what I can do again. So um, this year I ran a marathon in April. Um, I did a 304, which was very exciting. Awesome. And in two weeks, I'm doing a half marathon in uh, Rockland Lake State Park in New York, where I'm going to get to meet our one of our other guest reviewers, Megan. It will be super cool. And then I'm going to do the Kiowa Marathon in December. Awesome. That's super exciting. Yeah. Before we even started recording, Andrew was saying like, yeah. And I'm like, I just got to, cause you said it's a three, that half marathon is like a three mile loop that you do a number of times. Yeah. Like I just got to make sure not Oof. to get lapped. Cause I'll be <laughs> slow. And I was like, what's slow mean? She's like, oh, uh, you know, I might run like a 127. I'm like, that'd be a like three minute PR for me. So <laughs> she's fast, which is fun. It's we fun. You know, the Where good thing about game? running is it's all like, it's all reference to yourself, right? Yes. Like 
I'm not comparing myself to like Molly Seidel. Um, it's just going out there and doing the best that you can as an individual. Totally. Yeah. Where, where was, where's this race happening again? Um, it's about an hour, well, maybe not even an hour north of New York City. It's right near the Tappan Zee Bridge for anyone familiar with the New York area. Um, it's called Rockland Lake State Park. It's a okay. beautiful three mile dead flat loop around a lake. Sweet. Very That's hosted by Trials of Miles, right? It is, yeah. Yeah. That yeah, should cool. be fun. It looks like they put on really good events. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. All right. Um, we have our one big topic that we're going to talk about today, but I do want to give DJ a little bit of time because you, you had like a kind of a race yesterday. You, you raced a half marathon um, using it as kind of like a tempo day, but tell us about how that went and uh, <laughs> how you're doing. I mean, it didn't go as good as we were hoping for. Um, I mean, you guys know more the details, but the last month and a half has been about as rocky as a build up into a race could possibly be. So we just wanted to go run steady and don't do anything crazy and just just keep going until for as long as you can. Unfortunately, what was supposed to be steady, I held for just a hair over 10K. <laughs> the rest of the half marathon to go. So that ended up being a, a little on the rougher end, but Makes it was for a really I mean, long race. What's that? It makes for a long race when 10k is like the part where you start oh, to yeah. off and, and like oh it was weird too because it was actually i think it was like 85 percent humidity and like the weather was already warming up because the start time was 7 45 yeah and um like one of the rabbit guys just texted me he was like do you think uh the race like slowed down time five minutes i was like i don't think it slowed down five minutes but um i, I seems still... like everybody was about consistently two minutes back or so from what they normally would be hitting on a course like that but right. it's it was okay i guess i mean just try to keep it steady not do anything crazy just good to get out there and have a strong effort again it was kind of sad looking at the watch and being like okay this is a wash yeah, <laughs> like, it, it wasn't that long months. ago that we were going going you were going can i even weight bear on this ankle so yeah. i think that's pretty good <laughs> totally so, it's still, but that was not that long ago. So that's, yeah, cool. that was three weeks ago, I think. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, so I ended up going, yeah, I think 113, I think was the time. And then, so like 530s or so on the average. So cool. That's still yeah. great. Way to, <laughs> yeah, that's way to awesome. put an effort out there. Oh, I also, Andrea, one more question for you for the people who are here to just hear about shoes. Um, what shoe do you, are you picking for your half marathon and your marathon coming up? What's kind of your shoe of choice or are you undecided? Um, so far the Vaporfly next percent is my shoe. Nice. Yeah. For both distances, half and full. Yeah. I did the marathon in April and the Vaporfly and really liked it. Um, and I used it for the 5k I did a couple weeks ago. So I'm tempted to try the Endorphin Pro, um, but We'll see. Once I start doing some longer runs, I'll test them out and decide. Which one? Yeah. Cool. Most important question, what color are you going to go with for your race? Oh, well, <laughs> it is very important to find red shoes because red, of course, is the universal color of aggression. Um, but so far, <laughs> I haven't found any red vapor flies. So... <laughs> 
they have the pink ones or the the next percent one had the pink ones well if they're close enough to red i'll have to uh don't can't you customize the color doesn't the, the nike id oh yeah but oh or is that rigs i've never done that customize so it's it. like super expensive well, get, I have a Sharpie. I'll send you a red Sharpie. All right, sweet. Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. Just spray Great. paint them like the pros do. I, I yes. like that. I like that you said red was like the universal color of aggression. I know we, we <laughs> talked extensively about how red can, you actually educated us on how that can actually enhance performance. And there's actually literature on that. But uh -huh. I, I, I was thinking performance rather than aggression, but you know, not that different. <laughs> no, it's, it's funny you bring that up too, because uh, Klein considers red the universal color of DOR as well. Yeah. It's like, if we bring up any kind of singlet or design options, it's like, no, it's gotta be red. It like has it to be has red. to be red. Right, so <laughs> what like... is the underlying psychology in that? That's very interesting. <laughs> I'd like to think I'm nice, maybe I'm not. <laughs> no, no, you are. It's just, it's just funny. It's like, that's like the one mandatory, like it's gotta be red or some variation of red. <laughs> yep. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Well, let's get into let's get into the topic for the day. As always, the caveat before we start or the disclaimer is that this should not be a substitute for medical advice. Um, this is educational in nature. Um, so, if you have actual questions about a, your your own conditions, you should be seeking care from your orthopedic physical therapist or your physician. Okay, so the topic today is all about the waxing and waning trends that we've been seeing in the running shoe industry namely those that are related between minimalist uh, shoe design and maximalist shoe design. And if you've been around the sport or if you've looked into the history of the sport over the last 20 years, you've been seeing the rise and fall of some of these trends. And so we want to have a discussion on what are these trends, but then also what are some things that aren't necessarily known in the literature yet? Um, but there, you know, there's pieces of the literature known, but what are some of these things that might make us think about who potentially might not want to use these at all, certain types one way or another, and who may actually want to go those directions and why. So it should be a fun discussion because there aren't many black and white answers to these questions. Um, and so I'm, we're excited to think deeply about this stuff, tying it to the literature we do have and going from there. Um, part of this was sparked by an article that came out by the Washington Post um, and it's called, it's time to rethink cushioned footwear for kids and seniors. Um, and it's, um, there's a, a, a researcher named Irene Davis. Um, she's at Harvard right now, uh, but she was also at UD in the past. That's my alma mater for DPT school, um, for PT school. And she um, has kind of been the pioneer in exploring the world of minimalism and what that does for our feet. So we're going to be referencing some of her literature. We're going to be looking at some of the literature regarding maximalist footwear, that kind of thing. So kind of the big question that we're asking is, should maximal shoes be recommended for kids or for seniors to use? That's kind of our, our platform question, but we're going to dive into that as we go. So before we dive too deep, Matt, you have something you want to say? Yeah. 
Um, just to, in addition to Dr. Irene Davis, I'd like to shout out uh, Dr. Christine Pollard up at Oregon State University, who's starting a brand new PT program, which I believe they just started their first class um, up in Bend, Oregon. She is someone you're going to hear us reference a lot as well as she's done a lot of great literature on maximalist shoes and what they can and cannot do. So cool. Well, there's some good names. We'll have a reference list too for the, anybody that's curious that wants to read some of the studies that we reference. So it's a classic East-West Coast battle here. Of course, as always. <laughs> All right. All right. So let's, um, let's start with just some quick, quick definitions. Um, when it comes to minimalist, um, the, the idea of a minimalist shoe, what is minimalism? It's a shoe that is devoid of extra cushioning or protection underneath um, and allows for flexibility and movement of the foot. So it doesn't provide kind of guidance, stability, protection, but is just minimalist in nature and allows the foot to move. Um, in reference to what they would call a quote, traditional running shoe, like you, I think you could put in your head like the Cumulus, like from Asics or something like that as kind of your standard, um, what's considered a standard running shoe these days. So from there, something that is more devoid of cushioning. Oh yeah, the Wave Rider could be another example of a standard running shoe. Um, so that would be in the world of minimalism, maximalism being different, obviously going from the standard shoe, you would be adding cushion and adding support um, and adding protection. And so you have the two extremes from the standard and um, it's so funny for the, like most people are listening on podcasts, but David and Matt are just like whipping out like a million shoes, <laughs> <laughs> but uh not helpful for the podcast people, but there's people who probably watch it on YouTube too. So that's cool. So let's go from there. What do we know right now? Let's just open this up. What do we know about potential positive and negative effects of minimalist footwear and using it? Well, I think one of the things that comes up is a lot of people believe or have tried to test whether or not minimalist footwear reinforces quote unquote natural biomechanics and how the loads shift and change throughout the gait cycle. I, it's hard to, to pin down benefits in either way as far as that goes. But one thing that I was looking at in a couple of studies before, and, and this kind of comes down to more individual characteristics anyways, but when you run, you have a couple of different strategies you can use. And a lot of people will break it down into either a hip strategy or an ankle strategy or heel strike versus forefoot strike or midfoot strike or all these different kinds of ways of running. But one thing that they have shown is that when you're in more of a minimalist platform type shoe, there's a little bit more force through the plantar flexors and coming through the forefoot into that region specifically, um, which makes sense. I mean, especially for people that use a little bit more of an ankle strategy, or if you're wearing a track spike or you're running a 1500 or something like that, you're, you're putting a lot more force through the forefoot and things like that. And the shoes tend to be more minimal. And just anecdotally, a lot of pros too have had a hard time running in say a Vaporfly or a, a Maximus racing shoe when they're trying to kick or sprint and really pick up the pace. Like, they, like if they need to go and click off a sub 55 at the end of a race, it's very difficult to do that when you're not in spikes or, or lower profile shoes. And so that's more anecdotal, but it can give you a little bit of a closer platform to the ground, give you a little bit more ground feel. In some ways, I guess more stability in that aspect. I, that's completely arbitrary based on other things, but um, a lower pr platform 
more ground feel and um, a little bit more flexibility and natural pathways for the foot, I guess, would be the normal argument for that. Go ahead, Matt. I think to, to summarize that, so having a shoe that's closer to the ground, you get more what's called proprioceptive feedback. So when you have a more cushioned shoe, you don't get as good ground flow. So you really, your foot really doesn't know what's happening on the ground, which can be problematic for more technical terrain. So you get a lot more input into the different nerves and uh, sensory components of the foot. When I say sensory, it means your, your body is trying to figure out what's happening around it, right? It's picking things up, sensation. So you get the, this is where impact forces are not always bad, right? So when you have impact through the lower extremity, you have these things called proprioceptors or proprioceptive input where these nerves are in the joint capsules or in the ligaments. And so when you put in, in the muscles tendon, when you put stress through there, your body goes, oh, okay, I'm getting some input. So you get much better input through the ground. There is evidence suggests that even walking in shoes that are more minimal can actually strengthen uh, some of the more intrinsic or smaller muscles in the foot and ankle, just as much as doing specific exercises. So there is the possibility of better proprioception and increased um, endurance, foot strength. Of course, you just have to be careful with how, like any kind of strength program or anything like that, which we can get into that later. It's you got to transition to that slowly. So better ground feel, better body awareness, um, not necessarily a change in foot strike. You'll see a lot of people that don't necessarily do that. And there's a, there's a discussion there, but definitely some improvements in using your foot and ankle. If you transition slowly. Yeah. Andrew, you have anything to add there when you think about, when you think about minimalist footwear and what the effects are? Well, a couple of things. Um, I think that studies have also found that people who regularly train in minimalist footwear, not people who have just recently transitioned have stronger gastroxoleus muscles, their Achilles tendon tends to be larger in size because of the remodeling that occurs. Um, it was interesting Matt brought up proprioception because I, when this article in the Washington Post came out, I had recently done a treadmill run where I ran half of it in the endorphin shift and then half in the New Balance Beacon. And the shift, of course, is a lot stiffer and has greater stack than the beacon does. The beacon's more flexible, lower stack. And I was shocked. I had run in the shift first and then I put the beacon on. And it was just incredible how much more I could feel in my foot in the beacon. And I'm running on a treadmill that has no irregularity to it. And it got me thinking about proprioception and how we use that in the clinic. And when I'm treating a patient who let's say has a knee injury, of course, proprioceptive training is something that I include in their exercises because we know that it can reduce injury risk, but we also know that improving proprioception in an extremity can also reduce joint pain. So if you have somebody who's always running in a shoe that reduces your proprioceptive input, could that also contribute to them experiencing more pain when they get an injury because they aren't getting the normal sensory input that they would when they're doing their preferred activity, which is running or walking. Um, it would be a really interesting study to do. And of course, we're at least I'm not in the university. I know Matt is um, just testing a person's proprioception. There are various tests which can be done for that. And if when they do get injured, is there a correlation to 
levels of pain they experience, the levels of disability, the duration of their recovery. Um, I think that, that may all be missing an important piece of the puzzle when putting people, and I know that this, we're supposed to be talking about minimal shoes, okay. but I'm talking go together. about maximal shoes now. <laughs> um, if you have someone who only runs a high stack shoe, what does that do to the proprioceptive input and function of their foot? I was just going to say, too, that they have shown that the leg stiffness increases with the higher back height in order to balance mm -hmm. some of that out. Yeah, it's interesting. People, they basically found that people who run in high stack cushioned shoes, their legs respond similarly to if they were running on a softer, more compliant surface, which makes sense. You've got a softer, more compliant surface in your shoe that's going to be similar to running on a softer, more compliant surface. So uh, David Mench alluded to this earlier, but when there, there's some mixed literature on like exact biomechanical factors, but some of the more intrinsic stuff, there is changes associated with running in maximal shoes and minimal shoes. And again, I want to clarify that maximal and minimal shoes are not bad. They're tools, but just like any tool, you need, they need to be used appropriately and balanced out. So there are mechanical changes that happen with maximal shoes, i.e. you'll start to shift because there's so much cushion, the, a lot of the work will shift away from the ankle and it will go up into the knee and hip. Um, for people that think that maximal shoes are more protective for their knee joints, that's not necessarily true. We actually know people tend to land harder um, when wearing these shoes because they're kind of searching. They don't have that same knowledge. They're, they don't have that perception. Oh, hey, I shouldn't hit the ground as hard. So people actually will land harder in more cushioned shoes. So in some, po in some populations, they can actually be protective, but for everyone, not necessarily. So they're not a cure-all. They're not this amazing, more cushioning is not necessarily better. The analogy that I would use for this um, is that the more, the more cushioning you have, the less your body intends to worry about that and the more it tends to worry about stability because softer, more cushioning means an inherently more unstable platform. So instead of worrying about appropriate shock absorption, your body's going to stiffen up trying to create stability, which again, you know, the stiffer you run, the more kind of like the less joint play you're going to have and the potential for more force into the joint. So again, these are things you can't really escape, right? So these are tools. You can use these at appropriate times. And there is all, there is a place for maximal shoes for a lot of people, but you can't assume that you're going to escape forces. That, that's not how that works. Minimalism is exactly the same, right? There's less cushioning there. You may not have to worry as much about stability because your body's going to get a lot of proprioceptive input, but you better make sure you're good at shock absorption because you don't have anything else that's going to take that. So it's a balance. I really like what you said, Matt. You can't escape forces because I think that's something that a lot of runners don't know or don't think about. If you get a maximal issue, yes, there's going to be less force on your foot, but you're going to have more force on the knee and the hip. You get a minimal issue, now you're shifting force to the ankle and foot. And I think we were talking about uh, our, when I was writing my review on one of the rockered shoes, uh, one of the things that I wrote about was that with a ankle rocker, you shift force to the forefoot. 
you have a lot of toe spring, well, that shifts force posteriorly onto the heel. So you can have all of these great innovations to take stress off of one part of the lower extremity, but that force doesn't disappear. It's just going to go somewhere else. That's a really important key. And I'd like to, to bring that. We've gone through this before. So when we went through the minimalist phase, it was really powerful in the running industry, which it'll come back, by the way, for people who are like, oh, we're in this maximalist stuff. This stuff cycles. Um, we had a lot of people jumped into, into the minimalist and barefoot stuff. And all, they're like, oh, this is supposed to be great. I'm, I'm not going to be injured anymore. Well, that was not true. We got tons of people with stress fractures, with Achilles problems, because they transitioned to that too quickly. We are seeing the opposite end of this, where people are coming in with more hip-related pathology, a little bit more knee stuff, because they're jumping into maximalist stuff, and the forces are changing. So obviously we're a little biased and I'm certainly biased when I say this as a physical therapist who treats with exercise and movement, but to run, you have to be strong. You do not run to get in shape. You need to be in shape to run. There are a lot of forces you need to tolerate. Doesn't necessarily mean they're bad. Does not necessarily actually good, but your body needs to be able to handle them. And sh the shoes are tools. So extra stuff. Got to make sure you're strong first. So just a couple things to summarize what, what's been talked about so far. Um, you guys have kind of touched on the fact that there is documented change in mechanics. It's not all fleshed out, but um, like the example, if they had runners run barefoot and then if they put them in a shoe, there were differences, uh, relatively consistent differences on where people landed and then what the force peaks looked like um, for, for, for full barefoot, Matt. Not, ne weird. not necessarily. So people may not change their foot strike. And we've seen this repeatedly. That depends on how much proprioception you've had. You can put people in a barefoot condition. They will still heel strike, but they, their mechanics and loading will usually change. You are their loading right. profile yes. for, the, for yeah. the impact peaks. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so that, I, go ahead. I, I had seen one with the New Balance Minimus compared to a Hoka Oneone Clifton. And it basically showed that total foot contact and four foot contact peak forces were higher in the minimus compared to the Clifton, which makes sense because it's a stiff rocker with a high stack. So may, perhaps maybe it's a little more in the heel in the Clifton, but then that load goes higher up into the hip and knee. Right. And that would make sense for total foot contact to have higher in the minimus. Yeah. You might, so you might load a different part of the foot, but you, you maybe yeah. I should clarify, you may not land there. That was my, that was a mistake. My bad. Right. Yeah, they, they've just seen there, there are changes that happen with different yep. types of shoes in terms of loading profiles, Yeah, um, meaning how quickly the forces get impacted into the, into the foot and how high they go. And in the um, conditions where you are wearing shoes, those are higher. Um, where in conditions where you're not wearing shoes, those are typically lower. Um, but forces aren't necessarily a bad thing. And what you guys talked about is that the injury uh, rates are the same in both of these movements. There has not been a decrease in injury rates with minimalist movement. There's not been a decrease in injury rates with the maximalist movement. The injuries just seem to be different and you're predisposed to different kinds of injuries with each. And we talked about what they were, um, where some of the minimalist movement might be more towards the foot and the ankle and the Achilles and the calf, whereas the ma maximalist movement may bring you up the chain more to the knee and to the hip. So that's kind of, generally, that's kind of what we're seeing is that there aren't changes in injury rates. They just change what injuries are happening. One, some of the arguments that are made 
for um, in both directions is that if you're just not prepared to go in the shoe, that's why the injuries happen. So if you just prepared one shoe would actually be better. So like Irene Davis would argue, if you prepare yourself to be in a minimalist shoe, you're not going to get injured because it's better to run that way. Um, so there, there are people who are still going to sit in, in different camps with it, but, um, from what we know so far, it's, it's more, uh, messy than clear. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. So I think another topic that I want to hear you guys' thoughts on um, that's a little bit more muddy is uh, development. So looking at kids and thinking about what we do and don't know about strengthening feet and walking barefoot or with minimal shoes or whatever it is. Um, should we throw kids in hokas or other maximalist shoes just as their everyday shoe? Um, not necessarily talking about running, but I'm talking like my four-year-old, should he be wearing these, these big, you know, cushioned shoes or should he be in minimalist stuff and why? I think it depends what age of child you're talking about. Um, if you're talking about a four-year-old, absolutely not. They're still developing. You think about just the develop how a child's lower extremity alignment will change from age four until age eight. The you know baby starts out more ver Jenny varus bow-legged, then they progress to knock-kneed, and then eventually by like seven or eight, kids lower extremity alignment should be pretty pretty straight. So you certainly wouldn't want to put a kid in a shoe that does not allow for normal ankle and foot motion when walking or running. Why would we want to alter a child's mechanics when their mechanics are still developing and changing? Now, if you're talking about a 16-year-old girl who's at skeletal maturity, that might be a different question, but it also depends how long has she been, and are we talking about someone who's running cross country or someone who's just walking in hokas in, at school? Um, I think if you're talking about runners, it's a different story because you should be thinking about the development of them as an athlete over their lifespan. Um, I would say that kids should not be wearing shoes that medically alter natural lower extremity mechanics when running, meaning they don't need to be running barefoot, but they shouldn't be in a shoe with rockers. They shouldn't be in a shoe with a really thick stack that's going to alter their proprioceptive input. You could or not, they should be in a motion control shoe because as we know, motion control shoes don't really do what they say that they do. Um, and if you put a child in a motion control shoe, will you be affecting their motor development, their proprioceptive development? So I think that, and of course, the literature about these like middle ground minimal shoes, something like the Kinvara, where there's a little bit of stack, um, drop is like four to six. They've actually found that those are 
worse than wearing a minimal shoe or wearing a maximal shoe in terms of planter pressures um, and injury rates, but that's like a whole nother <laughs> podcast, right? Um, but I think in general, my recommendation to a child's parents who's who the child wants to run and develop as a runner would be to put them in a shoe that allows natural motion, protects the foot, um, and doesn't alter mechanics at all. Protecting the foot meaning meaning like from rocks. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. Not like a cushioned protection. We're talking like literal, you don't want a nail to go into your kid's foot. Right. Yeah. I, I think one thing that's important too is activity, lifestyle, and variation. Because it's one thing if the kid's just walking around in hokas all day at school, goes home, sits down, and plays video games. It's another if the kid walks around in hokas, takes off their foot during, or takes off their shoe and plays around the grass in the front yard, goes to baseball practice, wears cleats and gets exposure, or soccer practice, practicing lateral movements and higher things. I think having a certain amount of variance in the skills and the activities and the things that you're doing might even be more more of a general topic than just the footwear itself. Um, but I agree. I don't think we should be st- like locking out ankles and decreasing proprioceptive input to the kids. I think that's very important. I'll let Matt go. I, I agree with both of you where there, there is a time and place for each one. Um, I think as you develop and I had the, I am not a pediatric therapist by any stretch. I had the wonderful experience during my last clinical rotation in PT school to work at the Napa Center, which is an amazing neurodevelopmental uh, physical therapy clinic over in Hawthorne, California. I like shout out the Napa Center. They were, they taught me more than I could ever. It was amazing. But what I learned there and got to talk to them about was this exact topic about what should kids be wearing in terms of the younger, younger ones. When we're talking about like anywhere from zero up to like six to eight, where you're getting those really like a lot of development is happening. And I agree with, with both in that some variety is key, but when it comes to the younger years, there's, there's so much musculoskeletal development happening that less is really more, you know, having, and there's lots of options now in terms of having a nice wide toe box to let the, the metatarsals get, be able to spread out correctly to allow for appropriate proprioceptive input, right? So kids, what's called sensory integration or being able to tolerate the input from the of landing on the ground, like that's, that has to develop too. People assume, oh, the only thing that when my kid is growing up is just their height, their muscles. No, it's your brain going, how do I handle all the things around me? Whether it's socially, there's developmental parts there, emotionally developmental parts, but also sensory wise going, what do all these sensations around me mean? And so the foot and the lower extremity need to be able to integrate these correctly. So at that younger age, I would probably avoid heavily cushioned shoes just for normal development. The, the body needs to be able to handle a lot of twisting, rotation, side-to-side movement. That's where your arch develops. So that's important. As you progress past that point, I think now, once you've got the foundation down, variety is key. And I think having several different options is really important. I get messages all the time, both from locally and around the United States, email-wise, people asking, hey, my daughter or son just started cross country and I put them in minimalist shoe and they can't handle getting, they keep getting injured. I'm like, well, have they been physically active? The answer is no. There is a time and a place for a Hoka. It might be better if they don't have very good 
movement control or shock absorbing ability. I know it, uh, Hoka initially might be a better shoe for a lot of these kids in the United States. Most of our kids are not very well conditioned, right? Especially compared to other countries. A lot of them are sitting, we drive them everywhere. They don't have to walk. So getting into a high level of physical activity, you might want a shoe that's got a little bit more to it. You're going to want to transition out of that eventually, if possible, because if you're going to wear track spikes or cross country spikes, you're going to have to get used to that. That's a huge transition. So starting out, a Hoka might be really good or a maximal shoe might be really good for somebody that's just getting into running. But depending on what you, you find, you can experiment after that. It's just like anything, transition into these things. So I agree at the younger age, I think we should keep them out of really restrictive, narrow, high stack sh- or like shoes. But as you get older, you should definitely experiment with that. And now coming from working with children that may have developmental delays in their musculoskeletal maturity, that's a whole different conversation in terms of posting or orthotics or stuff like that. Th- that's an exception. There's always, that's going to be highly individual. And that's a whole nother like series of pod of podcasts and episodes. So that doesn't quite apply for, but those with normal musculoskeletal maturity and normal sensory integration, um, no initially and then yes depending on what they need it for as a tool yeah that's a really good point matt that kid like if you're talking about a 13 year old who decided to join the cross-country team but previously didn't do much you have to consider their physical background in shoe recommendation you definitely can't put them in a minimal shoe they will absolutely get injured um And that also kind of leads down the path of, well, middle school and high school sports tend to not do a very good job of providing conditioning programs for athletes. They just have them do their sport, but there's no emphasis on all of the additional strength and flexibility work that is necessary for whatever sport you're talking about. And running is a huge example of you go to cross country practice, all you do is run. You maybe do some drills, same thing with track. You probably do some form drills, but they're probably not having strength training sessions unless you have a very good coach or program. Um, but they're missing out on a huge part of these athletes development. Yeah. Uh, on a, on a s- side note, I let strength training was mentioned. I think that's important at any age. There was a stereotype for a long time that, oh, you know, if my kid picks up a weight, it's going to stunt their growth. That's not been shown. The opposite actually has been shown in terms of facilitating optimal musculoskeletal development and injury prevention. So it is okay for your kids to pick up and be lifting heavy. Yeah, That's okay. It will probably help them. I would say that's you know, shout out to all of our high school and middle school gym teachers. Like they get treated the worst and are honestly one of the most important parts and gym programs keep getting cut around the country. We need more conditioning, not less for our kids. Yeah. And I think, you know, outside of the shoe realm, if any of us could give recommendations to parents or coaches, it would be make sure your kid isn't specializing in a sport, like until they're 18. (laughs) Um, Maybe that's a little extreme, but, but 16, you know, like kids and even the best athletes in, in their sport were multi-sport athletes and doing lots of different things because we're talking about footwear, but outside of that, 
sports specialization early is really rough on on kids. So um, I, I, I should note the 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 ones that have successful long careers tend to be the ones that have a lot of like variety early on. Unfortunately, the ones that tend to specialize early can peak really quick, and then the last part of their career can be a little rough injury wise. It's not everyone, but frequently. or they just get a lot of burnout. Yeah. We're not even think, talking about the psychological component. That would be interesting to look at. Somebody knows that. I don't, I don't know what that literature is, but I'd be very curious if... Just read Tiger says, Woods. Uh, is it the biography on Tiger Woods? Oh, I've never read that. I haven't either, but yeah. my coworker did, and yeah. he told me about some of the crazy stuff that his life entailed. And so, oh, oh yeah. Same with... Uh, I think Andre Agassi wrote an autobiography, yep. and yep. he basically hated tennis. Yep. Wow. Yep. Okay. So, you know, we, we just touched a lot about kids, what it looks like. I think generally the idea of allowing development outside of um, highly cushioned shoes uh, makes sense from a theory standpoint. There's nothing that necessarily states that wearing a maximal shoe is going to ruin your kid's life. But uh, there's the, the theory, the theory is pretty good there about allowing the foot to develop as your, as your skeleton is developing, getting the proprioceptive input, um, especially in those younger ages. So, um, but let's transition to the other end of the spectrum and let's talk about uh, kind of people in the world of not just age, but I'll say 65 and up, but also getting into more of like frail, regardless of age. Um, and changes in, in that kind of stuff. So what do you guys think in terms of recommendations for people in that spectrum of the world um, in terms of should they be using minimalist? Should they be using maximalist? Why? It depends. So, yeah, it depends. I think so much of it's individualized. I mean, it comes straight back to how active are they? What is their lifestyle like? Or what are they doing day to day? And what are their needs? I think that's the most important question because some people might just want something that they can walk on a very flat road on. They do their little mile walk in the morning and they come back, they make their coffee and then they might do some things throughout the day because they're retired and that's all they want. Some people might want a lot more than that or vice versa. Like there's just such a wide spectrum. Uh, I think Clinically, it's good to take a look at where the impairments are and what you can do to help if they are in the clinic and they're asking that specific question. But a lot of it comes back down to that comfort paradigm of just like, does this shoe work for you? Does it feel good? Does it do everything you need it to do? Because I have some people that like, trying to think of like a case example. So there, there was someone who like couldn't stand a high rocker shoe, but they liked having a slightly softer platform underneath them with a more flexible thing and like the hoka hupana was like the the gold shoe for them but they don't they don't run they just they, they walk it's like a lifestyle shoe and that's that's what works for them and they can do a little bit of everything for them whereas some other people have loved the bondis they have really stiff ankles and like hips and like they just like that ability to actually open up their stride again and, and that for them that's all they wanted um, other people, they hate it. It's a very high stack shoe, very stiff, like proprioception's way out of whack. And they might like something more like the Topo ST4, like that I have somewhere. Where is it at? I don't know. It is. <laughs> but something more low profile, where they feel the ground, it has more flexibility, and it's 
something that they feel more comfortable moving around in. Um, so I think it's just such a wide paradigm and they are adults and they can make an educated decision on some of this stuff. And I usually just advise that they try a few pairs on um, local running store, even REI, like anything, just, just put more than a few pairs on and see what it feels like and get an idea for what you like. David, I like what you said about considering the individual and not just lumping everybody into one category based on their age. Um, around here in Connecticut, many of the orthopedists and podiatrists recommend HOCAs to their patients who have any type of ankle stiffness or foot problem, which works for a lot of those people. As a therapist, it's important to consider the drawback of their preferred shoe. We know that thicker soled or higher stack shoes reduce proprioceptive input to the foot and ankle. So we might emphasize the importance of balance and proprioceptive exercises to those patients, which we probably are doing anyway, since we know that they have a foot or ankle problem, but it's all about balance, looking at our patients as a whole person and what's going to help them function for the things that they care about the most. If they want to walk, if they want to be able to run, if they like to hike, we've got to figure out the right tools to help them function for their lifestyles. Totally. I, I'm going to sneak in and say just a couple tidbits. I think for people who I work with who have significant balance deficits in the kind of forward and back direction, um, sagittal plane, there are a couple shoes that I think are worth considering not using because um, there are some of the design of, of rockers really, um, yep, that's one of them. So David just held up the A6 Glide Ride 2. And if you've worn that shoe, you know it has kind of this falling off a cliff feel as you roll forward and you do have to be able to control that. And then I think the other one that Matt held up early, earlier for me is the Skechers Go Run um, Max Road series. And so the Max Road's heel um, has a really significant bevel that kind of feels like you can fall backwards when you roll onto it. And so if you're somebody who's in a situation where you've had falls in the past, and you're looking for a shoe that you're going to use to walk around the house, or if you're a runner to be running in, you know, I, I would make sure that you try these on before you just go buy them. Um, because you, you don't want a shoe that you have to control a lot of front and back or sagittal plane motion if you, if you can't handle it. Um, so just, it's worth considering some of those things that don't have flexibility because there are other more highly stacked shoes that don't have as an extreme of, um, of a rocker that's going to push you forward or backward. So. I, I would totally agree with Nathan on that, that, you know, we, I, I'm a little biased since I tend to do better with a little bit more rocker, uh, and some, with some of my ankle mechanics, especially how stiff my Achilles and calf is. Um, I just need to work a little bit more on that, but again, it's, it's not a one size fits all. So people that have balanced deficits, a rocker shoe may not be a good idea. You might be something, you might want something a little closer to the ground that gives you that input. That's going to help your body go, Oh, I know where I am. So, you know, so if you do lose your balance, you might be able to pick, like react to that quicker because you've already know where you are on the other side of that. If you're somebody that doesn't have very good mobility of your foot and ankle, right? So it's really hard to transition over it. A rocker shoe is going to be really, really good because that rocker is going to replace what you're missing. So again, it's not a one size fits all. It's what do I, what either, what good things or what deficits do I have? And how do I find a shoe that matches and complements me? And 
helps optimize what I do have as much as possible while I continue to work on that outside of the shoe. Yeah, and I agree with everything Matt just said. And just to reinforce that too, I want to just really reiterate too that there's a lot of variance intrinsically within a lot of these companies as well. So it's not as simple as just saying, oh, well, ASICs will take care of you here. Saucony will take care of you there. You got stiff ankles, go to Hoka. Well, Hoka does have some pretty flexible and low profile shoes too. I mean, most of their shoes are that high stack um, rigid rocker, but not all of them are. Because um, like earlier when I said the Hupana for the listeners, if you don't know what the Hupana is, it's basically just a lifestyle crossover shoe. With, it's, it's basically a relatively low profile, flexible shoe. Um, so even within companies that are known for a specific thing, they still might have a lot of variance among their own models. So it's even more important to find that shoe that works for you independent of whatever company it may be. Variety is good. So and getting a good, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Andrea. Um, just emphasizing getting a good shoe fitting is important. I think as clinicians, we probably all have our favorite running, local running stores that we know do a good job in fitting people and recommending that they go there. Um, we want to help our patients as much as we can, and we want to make sure that we're sending them places that will give them good advice and have good return policies if they get a shoe and it turns out not to work for them. Totally. So I, I think, you know, we're going to wrap things up, but at the, you know, I think the overarching theme that you probably have heard every time that we dive into a topic is that things are simple until you start actually thinking about people. And so um, there are going to be sometimes general recommendations that come out either from us or from random articles you read on the internet, but uh, people make things complicated. And so when it comes to different stages of development, everyone's going to have different needs. When it comes to what these different shoes do, there are going to be uh, benefits and drawbacks of each of them. And you know, thinking that's what, what we're hoping to be a resource for everybody in helping you think critically about this. Um, I think uh, it's, it's a fun topic to dive into. We could probably talk to it about it for another hour, but nobody wants to hear us talk that long. So um, before, I, before I really wrap things up though, anybody else have anything else before we close? Mizuno, please, please bring back the wave universe. Thanks. <laughs> I guess there's just a lot of variance even amongst certain um, categories of shoes. So like I, for the listeners, uh, I just held up a bunch of racing flats. <laughs> so like low profile road shoes and you have some like the A6. What is this one? This is the RP5? Yeah. Um, very rigid for a cross country slash road flat. Or you have something relatively flexible profile same goes for the ring adidas has always done that torsion system so there's gonna be a little bit more rigid as well but with the flexible forefoot so uh just finding what works for you because i mean when you're going into those high school years and you start if you are going into cross country and track that's going to come up at some point so just finding what works for you in terms of that lower profile or racing fit for you yeah and then just to uh, add to David's comment for if you're a high school cross country or track runner and you're wearing spikes for the first time, make sure you give yourself plenty of time to transition into them. 
don't let a race be the first time you wear them. Um, spikes are just like minimal shoes, but they're really stiff. And if you don't transition into them properly, you're going to get hurt. Yeah, I still have a hard time transitioning into spikes. I would say, especially now, spikes are getting way more aggressive now that we're starting to see carbon plates in those two. So I've already had, I don't even know how many cross-country athletes I've seen the last couple of weeks that are just back getting back into races. And they did just that where they haven't worn spikes in a year and a half. And then all of a sudden they're jumping into it. Like we've all been saying, please, if it's, if it's really different, you need to transition into it for those athletes that are like high school, college, cross country and track that might be mean doing a little bit of your workout in them, wearing them for some strides for runners that are outside of that, especially older runners really take your time to transition, especially if you haven't worn something like that since high school, if that was 15, 20 years ago, take your time, please. It'll be well worth it. Older runner is someone who high school is 20 years ago. Oh no. Okay. I should be sorry. (laughs) That's almost 15 years for me. So I guess I can't say that. Yeah. 30. (laughs) Oh boy. Well, on that note, my bad. Uh, no, but thanks you guys. Thanks. Thanks to everybody for sticking with us in this conversation. I'm sure there are lots of other thoughts and questions. So if you want to shoot us messages with questions about this, this could be the perfect type of conversation to have kind of a Q and a session or a mailbag session afterwards to follow up on this, because there are so many different, um, offshoots within this topic that we could, that we could talk about. So please shoot us a message, either a private message on Instagram, or you can uh, email us at doctorsofrunning at gmail.com. We'll be able to compile a list of questions and maybe we'll do uh, a mailbag question after or a mailbag episode after this. But uh, in the meantime, uh, if you want to keep up with what we're doing, you can subscribe to the podcast or YouTube if you're on there now. And then check out what we're doing over on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, or join our Strava group for kind of the running that our group is doing. Um, We are super thankful that Andrea is on our team. Um, It's been fun to get to know her and learn from her. Uh, Just she has a lot of experience in different realms and 15 years as a clinician. I don't want to say it's a lot because I don't know what that implies, Uh, but (laughs) (laughs) she's got a lot of wisdom. And so we're, we're so glad to have her on the team as well as providing a female perspective on shoe testing. And so having her and Megan on the team has been great for that. So um, Andrea, thanks for joining. I'm sure we'll have you back again um, to join us. Thanks so much. Yeah. Awesome. And uh, again, please reach out to us uh, and ask us questions so we can keep talking.